Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word and we are so thankful for the revelation that you gave the Apostle John so many years ago of the end that you have promised to history. We're thankful, Father, that even right now you and your Son are reigning, that you, God, are King, and we thank you that you promised to one day consummate your kingdom over all the earth. We pray, Father, that this morning you would give us a clear vision of that end, that you would cause us to see exactly what it means that your kingdom and your reign will be consummated one day fully. Help us, Father, to see that clearly and by your grace respond rightly. We pray, Father, that this morning you would fill our hearts with joy that if we are truly your friends, the consummation of your kingdom means joy everlasting for us. Fill us with that joy now and cause that joy to produce in our hearts all of the perseverance and all of the praise and worship and adoration that it should. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us for our lack of worship. You are so worthy of it as our King. And we pray, Father, that this morning in showing us yourself more clearly and in showing us your kingdom more clearly, we pray that by your Spirit you you would move our hearts to joy and cause that joy to compel us to persevere regardless of the consequence and to praise you as you are worthy of being praised. All of this we ask in your name. We trust in your spirit to do it. We pray, Father, that by your spirit you would make this passage clear, that you would speak through me, that you would help us to listen, comprehend, and by your grace apply this word rightly and be changed by it. We know that this is what most pleases you, and we know it's best for us. So we ask all of these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. You know, in our country, we have the privilege of getting to elect officials to public office. And when election time rolls around each year, if, you're, if the person that you voted for gets elected, it's natural to be happy about that. I would imagine that in the uh, 2016 election, uh, if you happen to vote for Trump, you're probably very glad when he won and was elected to office. Even if it wasn't because you were so much a Trump fan, as much as you didn't want to see Hillary uh, take, take the office, um, you knew what that would mean for the country. And you were probably rightly happy to hear that he had won the nomination. Similarly, back in 2020, when Biden was elected to, uh, to, to the office of president, I'm sure that if you had voted against him, you were probably disheartened, also knowing what that would mean for our country. Well, in the, in the 2024 election, if I told you that the Republicans were not only going to take the presidency, but they were going to win the House, and they were going to win the Senate, and that together they had pledged to abolish abortion, to restore the sanctity of marriage, to reverse the advents of the uh, transgender ideology in our country, what would your response be? Would you rejoice? I certainly would. Government matters. It matters who holds positions of power. When the righteous reign the people rejoice. But as God says in Proverbs chapter 29, when the wicked rule, the people groan. See, the Bible reveals that history is a story with direction, that it's heading towards a particular end, an eternal end. And the blowing of the seventh trumpet 
in Revelation 11, verses 15 through 19, reveals the end of the story to us again. I say again because we've come here before in Revelation. If you've been with us for some time, you know now that Revelation has a kind of recursive structure. It revisits the same ideas, the same events from different vantage points. And the vantage point from which we're going to be viewing the end of all things today is from the perspective of kingship. We're understanding the end now in terms of kingship. Who reigns and what does that mean? Here's the answer. Are you ready? God reigns in the end. God reigns. And what does that mean? It really depends. It depends on whether you're a foe of the king or a friend of the king. So here's the big idea of the passage today. God's kingdom is consummated to the doom of his foes and to the joy of his friends. God's kingdom is consummated to the doom of his foes and to the joy of his friends. We're going to consider that idea in three parts. First, we're going to look at God's kingdom consummated. Second, we're going to look at the doom that comes to all of the king's foes. And then third, we're going to look at what God's consummation means for his friends, the joy to the king's friends. If you're a friend of the king, this joyous ending today, as you heard in the prayer before the sermon, should produce in your heart both perseverance and praise. You should let your heart and your life always cry out, long live the king, long live the true king. That's the right response to this passage. So let's go ahead and look at the first part, point number one, God's kingdom consummated. If you would, you can turn to verse 15 with me and read along as we continue with John's vision. He said, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, quote, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Remember, this is the seventh trumpet. There were six before this, and this is the second of three judgment cycles that we see in the book of Revelation. We went through the seven seals, we're at now the end of the seventh trumpet, the seven trumpets, and we're going to see later on in the book the, uh, the seven bowls that are going to be poured out. And they all tell the same, the same, they all relay the same kind of concepts to us in different ways and from different vantage points. God's judgment in history, the vindication of his name, and ultimately the vindication of his people. The number seven perhaps conveys a sense of completeness or fullness to us that God's name and his people are completely or fully vindicated through the course of these judgments, culminating, of course, in the end of history. There was an interlude, though, between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. That's why you haven't heard about the trumpets for the past few weeks, because in John, John, Revelation chapter 10, John got a vision. Uh, he, He received a bittersweet scroll that he was told to eat. That bittersweet scroll was the message of salvation and judgment that he was called by God to proclaim. And then last week we saw in chapter 11, verses 3 through 14, that the Holy Spirit-empowered church, symbolized by the two witnesses, would also testify to this full, bittersweet message of salvation and judgment, and that they would be persecuted by the world for it. They would be shamed. They would even be killed, but that God would vindicate his people and honor them in the end. Today we pick up again with the seventh trumpet. 
And with the seventh trumpet, when the trumpet sounds, we hear voices in heaven. Not just voices, but the passage says we hear loud voices in heaven. It's unidentified who these voices are, but they say in verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. They're speaking, by the way, as if this has already happened. It's past tense. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. This could be speaking in a prophetic way, as if these future events are so certain we're speaking like they've already happened. Or it could just be described from the vantage point of the future, looking back and seeing God's kingdom as having been consummated. Either way, what we see here depicted in the seventh trumpet is the end of the story. It's the end we've all been waiting for. The kingdom of the world has finally, at long last, become the kingdom of our Lord. Now, what does that imply exactly? Well, one thing it implies is that the kingdom of the world is not God's kingdom right now, right? There are two kingdoms. In the end, this passage says there will be one, but that's not the case yet. It might be better here to think of two kingships rather than two kingdoms, since when we talk about God's kingdom in Scripture, what we're really referring to is his reign or rule over the hearts of his people. Isn't God king right now? Yes, there is a sense in which God is reigning as king over the entire universe. God is sovereign over all things. Nothing happens outside of his decree, and he is the sovereign. We talk about sovereigns as people who are in positions of authority. God is the sovereign of the universe. In fact, the psalmist says in Psalm 93 that Yahweh reigns says, your throne, God, is established from of old. You are from everlasting. God reigns even now over the entire universe. But the kingdom of God in the Bible is, as others have, have put it, God's restorative reign and rule over the hearts of his people. And his people, as you know, are not of this world. In fact, the world, this should be obvious to you, is ruled by another king. This world is ruled by a different king. The people of this world and the institutions of this world are not obediently submitting right now to the rule of God. They're not honoring God as king. He's not king here yet, at least. Instead, as John says in 1 John 5.19, quote, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's Satan, the accuser, the prince of the power of the air. He is the king of this world. His kingdom involves all other demons, all other fallen angels that have rebelled against God, all the dominions of darkness, as the scripture calls them. It also includes all the institutions of this world through which Satan and his demonic forces operate. That would include demonically influenced governments, like we saw signified in the beast last week. All people who live in rebellion against God are part of Satan's kingdom. They're under his kingship. They're living under his reign and his rule. Satan's kingship is opposed to the kingship of the creator. 
You have two diametrically opposed kingdoms and two kings in opposition to one another. On the one hand, you have Satan and his kingdom. His is the kingdom of this world. And on the other hand, you have, as verse 15 calls it, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That's the reign of God, the Father, and the Son, Jesus, over the hearts of his people. Jesus here in this passage is called God's Christ. Now, sometimes we use the word Christ just as a, uh, as a substitute or as a, as a name for, for, for Jesus. But here it's not just a name, it's actually a title. The word Christ is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word, which means Messiah. It literally means anointed one. It says that this is the kingdom of our Lord and of his anointed one. In the Old Testament, there were a number of positions that were anointed. Uh, you had uh, prophets, uh, you had priests, you had kings. Those were all anointed offices in the Old Testament. Uh, but over time, the term Messiah, the term anointed one in this context, came to refer especially to the heir to David's throne that would be God's agent of salvation and judgment. And God's anointed one, his Christ, would share in his reign over his people. This Christ, this Messiah, this anointed one, of course, you know, is Jesus. The angel Gabriel said to Mary when she was pregnant with Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, the angel said in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse, in verse 31, he said, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. The end time kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ was officially ushered in with the coming of the anointed one. Jesus, the Messiah, inaugurated the kingdom of God through his earthly ministry and through his life death, resurrection, and ascension. He did it not through military prowess. He did it not through political maneuvering because God's kingdom is not a political nation state in the world among other nation states. God's kingdom is his restorative reign over the hearts of his people. And that began, officially began, with the coming of the king, the anointed one. We know from Genesis chapter 3, that Satan, the great adversary of God, the serpent in the garden, took captive God's subjects for himself. When Adam and Eve, our first parents, were deceived, they turned away from God as their king and without knowing it, perhaps, submitted to the kingship of the serpent himself. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, as you just read earlier, that each and every one of us was at one time under the kingship of Satan. We were all under his rule and reign. We were all living as part of his kingdom. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following who? Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You, at one point, were subject to Satan's rule. You were carrying out your own sinful desires, and you were by nature a child of wrath, under God's wrath. But what did God do? 
God sent his son to restore rebels to himself. To bring rebellious sinners like you and me under the kingship of the devil back under his reign and his rule. How did he do that? Through his anointed one. Through his Christ. It was in Jesus' life that Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter, revealed himself to be the long-awaited Messiah. He revealed it through his words and he revealed it through his deeds. He performed many miracles. Miracles that revealed to people that he was bringing the end-time restoration that was promised by God. The restoration from brokenness. It had come with him. The blind could see. The deaf could hear. The lame could walk. The dead were raised. The world was being restored. And he was teaching people how to live as part of the kingdom of God. In his sacrificial death, there was Jesus hanging on the cross with a sign ironically posted above his head that called him what? The king of the Jews. He died, our king, the king of God's people, a sacrificial death, laying down his life in our place. It was through his death that he redeemed his people from their sin. He paid the penalty of their sin for them, the equal of our hell, so that we could be forgiven by God and reconciled to him, reconciled to the ruler of all things. And it was in Jesus' resurrection that he raised us to life with him as new creations, that he raised us to life with him as people with new hearts that lovingly submit to God's reign and his rule, made us kingdom citizens. As Colossians 1, verse 13 says, the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus, the anointed one, rescues us from the kingdom of Satan and brings us into the kingdom of God under his reign and his rule. And it was in Jesus' ascension that the father exalted him to his own right hand where he now sits as king and reigns over his people. Jesus inaugurated God's kingship through his gospel ministry. And it is in that sense that we can rightly say the kingdom of God has already come. God's kingship has already been established over the hearts of his people through Jesus. But have we seen God's reign actualized over the entire world yet? We haven't. That part is still to come. We know that the world is still filled with rebellion. That is still very much under the power of the evil one, as John says. The full actualization of God's kingship will mean the submission of the entire world to him. It'll mean the entire world lives under his rule and honors him as king. And the Bible also says that his kingship will involve, when it's fully realized, will involve the complete restoration of this broken world from all its brokenness, from all the consequences of sin. And of that, we got a foretaste in the earthly ministry of Jesus. This is why it's right to speak of the kingdom of God as having already come and yet at the same time still coming. We use words like inauguration and consummation to describe God's reign. They're helpful words. Inaugurate means, quote, to bring about the beginning of something. So when we talk about the inauguration of God's end-time rule, we're talking about how Jesus brought about the official beginning of God's end-time rule. 
Consummate means, quote, to bring something to a state where nothing remains to be done. Nothing else needs to be done. There's still more that needs to be done. God's reign has not been consummated yet. There is a helpful example of what we mean when we talk about the kingdom being already inaugurated but not yet consummated. This example uh, was based uh, on one that I heard given by another author. Another author. You know, in springtime, especially in other places around the country, maybe not so much here because our weather doesn't really change a whole lot uh, throughout the course of the year. Um, but in springtime, uh, in other places, it's not uncommon for, for spring to start, but for it to still feel like winter in many ways. Spring officially starts on March 20th this year. That's when spring is inaugurated. That's when spring officially begins. But it might not be a while until it really starts to feel like spring, until the weather warms up and the clouds clear away and it stops raining as much and you have more light during the day. That's when our full expectations of what spring will be like come to be realized. That's when spring, you could say, is consummated. Our full expectations are now fulfilled. In the same way, we talk about the kingdom of God already being here, just like spring is already here on March 20th, but not yet fully here. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated with the coming of Jesus, his anointed one, but it has not yet been consummated. It hasn't reached the fullest expectations for what it will be yet. Daniel, the Old Testament prophet, prophesied back in chapter 7 of the book that bears his name, quote, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, and his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions shall serve and obey him. That's the fullest state. That's the kingdom consummated. And that hasn't happened yet. We see it happen in the sounding of the seventh trumpet. The kingdom of this world has not yet become the kingdom of our God. But that consummation is precisely what John sees in verse 15. It says again, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, quote, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever. The serpent is dethroned. Satan's crown is stripped from his head and placed on Jesus or placed on the Father and he will reign forever. That's the direction of history. That's where this world is heading it's headed toward the eternal consummation of God's kingship over all things. In the end, there will only be one kingdom, and there will only be one king, and he will reign forever and ever. So first, we've seen God's kingdom consummated. But what does that mean? What does it mean for us that one day God's reign will be fully actualized over the world, that the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God? It depends. It depends on whose side you're on. Everyone is on one side or the other. If you're on the side of the king of heaven, this consummation means your glory and your joy. If you're on the side of the kingdom of this world, the, soon, the, the current king, but the soon-to-be-deposed king of this world, then that side ends in doom for you. We're going to see that first. Point number two, doom to the king's foes. Let's look together at verse 16. Of Revelation 11. 
says the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. Do you remember the 24 elders from Revelation chapter 4? These are probably angels, very powerful angels. They're sitting on thrones. Perhaps that means they have authority or honor. And these powerful angels rightly fall on their faces before the all-powerful one, before the supreme ruler of the cosmos. And what do they do? They worship him. They're offering thanksgiving, actually. They're thanking him for what? Verse 17, they say, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. They're thanking him for establishing his reign, for consummating his kingdom. They call him the Lord God Almighty. This is referring here to God the Father. He is the Almighty One. That means he possesses all might, all power is his. He's sovereign over all things, and he's the one who guides history to his intended end. He's also called the one who is and who was. That kind of sounds like an incomplete title, though, doesn't it? It should ring a bell. This title or a similar title was used at the beginning of the book of Revelation. But there was an additional part there that's missing. Revelation 1, verse 4. We read, quote, John to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. There's no who is to come here in Revelation 11. Why not? Because he has come. He has come. Here he is the one who is and who was, but no longer to come because he has come. He has come. This title at highlights God's transcendence over time and his complete control of time. And it highlights, of course, his coming since he is no longer to come. The 24 elders, they praise him. They praise him because as they say, you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The great angels before God are thanking him for the consummation of his kingship. And what's in view here is his ultimate victory in the end. It's his defeat of all darkness, of all opposition to his rule. It's the establishment of the Father's reign over the cosmos forever to be unchallenged and uncontested. Verse 18 elaborates on what led up exactly to the consummation of his reign, or perhaps what the beginning of his reign means. The elders say in verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. There's one verb in verse 18 that I want to draw your attention to, and that's the word came. Came. What came? Four things, John says. God's wrath came. The right time for the dead to be judged came. The right time for God's people to be rewarded came. And the right time for destroyers to be destroyed came. They all came, just like God said. First, it says God's wrath came. Verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came. When it says the nations raged, perhaps as one person suggested, this is talking about how the nations hate God. They hate his rule and they hate his authority over them. Verse 18, 
maybe alluding actually to a Greek translation of Psalm 99, which talks about God's reign in the rage of the peoples. But we might also be reminded of Psalm chapter 2 here. If you're familiar with that psalm, maybe you heard its melody playing in the background of this verse. Psalm 2 talks about the rage of the nations against God and God's wrathful response to them. As psalmist writes in Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then speaking to his son, Yahweh says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then to the rulers, God says in verse 12, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. In the seventh trumpet, God's final, ultimate wrath comes against the raging nations. Revelation eleven eighteen. it doesn't come off very well in our translations, but in Greek, it's something more like, quote, the nations were wrathful and your wrath came. The idea is wrath for the wrathful. It's the same word group that's used to describe the nations and then God's response to the nations. What we're seeing here is, a, is an eye-for-eye eye form of justice. That is, God said to Moses in Exodus 21, If there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. As one commentator put it well, there is symmetry in God's judgment. There's something beautiful about symmetry, I think. When we see symmetry in nature, even in rough forms, it's uh, attractive to us, it's, it's, it's intriguing to us. When we see a snowflake that is perfectly symmetrical on both sides, or when we look at a butterfly which has two wings, each of which look like a mirror reflection of the other. There's something beautiful about that. God's justice mirrors the offense. It brings balance with judgment that perfectly reflects the crimes committed. God's judgment is never greater than deserved and it is never less than deserved. It is symmetrical with the crime. The consummation of God's kingdom means wrath for the wrathful, the nations who were enraged against God. We actually see the same kind of symmetry in the fourth item narrated by the 24 elders here. If you look again at verse 18, at the last item that is mentioned by them, it says, The right time came for destroying the destroyers of the earth. The destroyers are destroyed. In Greek, that's literally those that destroy the earth, but we're to understand that as those who destroy the people on the earth. These destroyers may literally destroy people, or it may be used metaphorically that they destroy people morally. They morally corrupt the world, or perhaps both. Both meanings could be true at the same time. In Revelation, of course, these forces of destruction would certainly include Satan and his demons 
and uh, the institutions of this world, demonically influenced governments, as well as all those who ally with them or cooperate with them, and everybody in the world that's part of this present evil age. All these destroyers, God says, in the end, when his reign is established, will be destroyed themselves. That's part of what the consummation of God's kingdom means. As David said in Psalm 716, the wicked man's mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull his violence descends. What does the consummation of God's kingdom mean? It means wrath for the wrathful and it means destruction for the destroyers. There is symmetry in God's justice, balance in his justice. The wrath and destruction that the angels are praising God here for is in the context of final judgment. Notice the second item they narrate in verse 18. It says, The time came for the dead to be judged. This is referring to the final judgment, what some call the great white throne judgment. This is where all the records of our works are going to be opened up, and each person is going to receive exactly what they deserve for how they lived. Unbelievers will be condemned. John gets a glimpse of this later on in Revelation 20, where he saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Apart from Jesus, final judgment means that all the king's foes will be found guilty of rebellion and justly sentenced to death, to eternal death. So wrath condemnation, destruction, and the vision's not over yet. After the praise of the 24 elders, we see something else in verse 19. You can look with me. Verse 19, John says that then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. I'm going to be honest with you, it's hard for me to tell precisely what this image is intended to convey. The Ark of the Covenant uh, in the Old Testament, it was a rectangular box or a chest that was made of acacia wood. It was overlaid with gold. It had rings on the side with poles that could be inserted to help carry the chest uh, from place to place. And inside the chest, uh, the tablets, two stone tablets with the uh, covenant written on them were placed inside the Ark. Uh, as, along with Aaron's staff with, which budded and some manna that was preserved uh, from the wandering in the wilderness. And then on top of the ark, uh, the, the lid of the ark had two cherubim that were each facing each other with their wings pointed towards each other and uh, uh, facing, facing the, uh, the cherubim on the opposite side. The ark, as you probably know, it was kept in the holiest of holies in the temple, which was the most sacred uh, was the most sacred location in the most sacred place in the nation of Israel. And the high priest was the only one who was allowed to enter the holiest of holies, and that he was only allowed to do once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant, it signified the seat of God's presence. And here, when we see the temple opened with the sounding of the seventh trumpet, along with apparently access to the holiest of holies because the Ark is visible there in the temple, and when we see the ark, we're likely intended to understand this as a manifestation of God's presence. I think the natural phenomena that's described here 
lends itself to that too. These cosmic signs are the signs that typically accompany an appearing of God. They're the signs that indicate a theophany is happening, that God is showing up. Verse 19, it says, There were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and an earthquake and heavy hail. <coughs> Perhaps that should harken us back to the coming of God to the top of Mount Sinai when he gave the covenant to Moses in Exodus 19. In that chapter, we read that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled and Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it, the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So these signs that are accompanying the appearance of the ark might lend itself to the idea that what we're seeing here is an appearing of God, a manifestation of God's presence. But for God's enemies, there's something else that these signs may convey. These same signs may convey to his foes judgment, doom. The exact same language, or similar language rather, was used in the context of judgment just a few chapters earlier. You might remember from Revelation chapter 8, before the first trumpet sounded, John said in verse 5 that the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And then in verse 7 we read that the first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. There, similar phenomena is used in the context of judgment. So what we see in the sounding of the seventh trumpet and the appearing of the ark may signify judgment to God's foes. With all that said, what are we to take away from the sounding of the seventh trumpet? Well, for one, those who are opposed to God's kingdom are surely doomed. The king's foes are doomed. The consummation of God's kingship means justice against all those who opposed his reign and rule. All those who rebelled against God will face his judgment. Wrath for the wrathful, destruction for the destroyer, and final judgment. That is why, by the way, the seventh trumpet is the third and final woe. You might remember, actually I'll just read to you verse 14, the verse right before our passage today. Before the trumpet was blown, verse 14 says, The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And then in verse 15, the seventh angel blew his trumpet. Perhaps you remember the first woe was the fifth trumpet. God using demons to bring suffering on his enemies. The second woe was the sixth trumpet. God using demons to bring death on his enemies. The third woe is the greatest of them all. It is the consummation of God's reign which means the final defeat of his foes. It means their ultimate doom. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that in the end, Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after what? After destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign, Paul says, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The consummation of God's kingdom means doom for the king's foes. So for you, the response should be simple. 
If you're in Satan's kingdom, flee from his kingdom. Flee to the kingdom of God. Bang on the gates until he opens it wide to you. How can you enter the kingdom of God? The very first words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1, says Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and he said what? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Do you want to enter God's kingdom? Jesus says the path is simple. Repent of your sins. Acknowledge your rebellion against God. Forsake it and then pledge your allegiance to the true king. To me, Jesus says. Turn from your sins. Turn to me and trust in me to save you. Repent and believe the good news. Consummation of God's kingdom, it doesn't, it doesn't just mean doom. It, mean, it means doom for God's foes. But what we see here in the sounding of the seventh trumpet is that it means something glorious, something joyous to those who are the king's friends. That brings us to our third and final point, joy to the king's friends. It's important to remember that even as we contemplate the doom that comes upon all of God's enemies, that the book of Revelation is written to a Christian audience. Many of these Christians may have been facing severe persecution at the time, and the seventh trumpet, just like much of what we read in the book, is intended to bring believers encouragement. This promise of doom for the king's foes is one of the things that's supposed to bring joy to the king's friends. It means justice is satisfied. It means that God's people are rescued once and for all from their enemies, from their oppression. It means that evil is no more. It means that the king's people are vindicated and the king's name is vindicated. If you're a friend of the king, rejoice in the defeat of all the king's enemies. But the second thing that should bring joy to your heart is mentioned in verse 18. You may have noticed that I skipped one of the items narrated by the elders there. Of the four things that the elders said the time came for, he mentions, or they mention one in verse 18 that's worth considering as we think about what the, king's, what the consummation of God's reign means for his friends. Verse 18, you can read it with me. <clears throat> it says, The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged came and the right time for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, came. The appropriate time for rewarding the king's friends came. Now it's hard to tell exactly how many groups are envisioned by John here. It's probably either two or three, depending on whether those who fear God's name are considered a separate group or if they're just describing the saints here. But when it says both small and great will be rewarded by God, it's such a beautiful picture of God's rewarding of his people in the end. That regardless of the social standing that his faithful servants had in this life, they will be rewarded by God as they are due in Christ. From the greatest in society, the Christian CEOs, the politicians, the influencers on social media, the Christian athletes, they will be rewarded by God just like the least in society will, just like the many Christians in impoverished countries that are struggling day by day to stay alive, or Christians who are facing 
persecution beyond what we can even imagine in other places around the world today. To everybody in between, to people like us who lead ordinary lives and work ordinary jobs, all of God's people, both small and great, will come before God and be rewarded. They will all be rewarded in the end. What are the rewards exactly? One commentator summarized it well. He said, quote, in Revelation eleven eighteen, reward is an umbrella term referring to the salvific benefits that God, will, that God will bestow on the faithful in the end. And then he continues to write, quote, this reward is described elsewhere in Revelation using a variety of metaphors, many of which we have already heard as we've worked through the book. This includes eating of the tree of life, immunity from the second death, hidden manna in a white stone, authority over the nations, white garments, the believer becoming a pillar in the temple of God and having written upon him or her the name of God in the new Jerusalem, sitting beside Christ on his heavenly throne, being present before God on his heavenly throne, and having access to the new Jerusalem through its gates. If you're a friend of the king, rejoice. Rejoice. The consummation of God's kingship means the reception of all the blessings of your salvation. In the same way that the just judgment of God will vindicate God's name and his people, so too, I think, will the rewards that the faithful receive vindicate them and vindicate their king. The king's friends rejoice at the defeat of the king's enemies, and they also rejoice at the reception of their reward. But there may be one more cause of rejoicing here that we should touch on. Let's reconsider verse 19 from the perspective of the king's friends. Verse 19, John saw God's temple in heaven opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Again, we see the manifestation of God's presence signified by the ark and perhaps the signs of a theophany as well. As some suggested, maybe the, maybe the appearance of the ark, which contained the covenant of God, maybe it's intended to symbolize God's fidelity to his covenant promises, that he has finally brought to pass everything that he said he would. But the opening of the temple, and specifically the opening of the holiest of holies, which is where the ark of the covenant would have been, and the visibility of the ark, may also signify the presence of God opened and available now to us in a whole new way. As one commentator put it, quote, God dwells with his people in a more complete and intense manner than previously. God, available, his presence open to people. Thomas Schreiner said, quote, saying that the ark of God's covenant is seen in the temple means God's gracious presence is available to all. The warmth and radiance of his love is manifested personally to all his saints. How incredible that the holy king is present and available to his people. It's possible to experience this king personally and intimately in a way unlike we have before. The consummation of God's kingdom brings joy to the king's friends because it means, one, the doom of God's foes. It means, two, the reception of their reward. And it means, three, experiencing God's presence like never before. What impact should this joy have on your life? There's just two 
applications I'll touch on briefly before we close. The first is perseverance, and the second is praise. First, it should motivate you to persevere. It should motivate you to be loyal to the king in the face of opposition and persecution from the kingdom of this world. This is an application that would have been especially relevant to some in John's audience, many Christians suffering severe persecution, wondering if they should remain loyal to the king in the face of the kingdom of this world, which is a very difficult thing to do. Upon hearing the, se- the sounding of the seventh trumpet, they should rejoice to see the consummation of God's kingdom and find encouragement to persevere. That loyalty to Jesus is worth it. Being a part of his kingdom is worth it. It leads to everlasting joy, that whatever the cost, whether it costs you your career or your family or your friends or even your life, that you will always let your heart cry out, long live the king, that your allegiance is to him. But secondly, the joy of this ending should compel you to praise God. It should compel you to praise God. The response of the 24 elders was spot on. Verse 16, the 24 elders who, sat, who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. If you're a friend of God, the joy of God's reign being established should bring you to your knees and compel you to put your face in the floor and adore him and worship him with all of your heart. The powerful, sinless angels who sit on thrones in the presence of God are falling on their faces before him. How much more so should you, a sinner who has experienced his saving and redeeming grace in a way that they never could, who was once part of Satan's kingdom and has now been transferred into the kingdom of light. Worship him with all your heart. Praise him for the consummation that awaits in the future, for inaugurating his kingdom now and and promising to come one day to make the kingdom of this world his kingdom. Thank him for everything that it means that he is king and that his kingdom is coming soon. Thank him for the defeat of his enemies. Thank him for the rewards that are in store for you if you are faithful. Thank him for the experience of his presence that awaits. Sing to him with your whole heart. When you're here on Sunday mornings and we're singing together as a church, truly sing to God. Don't allow yourself to mouth the words but not really mean what you're saying. Don't be distracted. Sing to him. He is worthy of your praise. Sing to him on your own throughout the week. Praise him in your prayers. Thank him and adore him as he is worthy of being thanked and adored. Don't shy away from giving glory to God in front of others. Wayne deserves credit for everything good in your life. Give glory to God for what he's done for you. Worship him with all of your life. Everything you do should be done out of worship and adoration for him. The image of being a living sacrifice is so great that we are called to lay our bodies down on the altar that we're a living sacrifice to God. That everything we do should be done as an act of worship and adoration. Should be done out of our love for him. Should be done to bring him pleasure and honor. Crying out, 
constantly in everything we do. Long live the king. That that would be the anthem that could describe everything in, in life for us. Everything we do in life. That's the right response. Worshiping him. Falling on your face. Praising him for the consummation of his kingdom. Government matters. It matters who holds positions of power. And the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11 shows us the direction of history. It shows us the eternal ending that concludes this story of history. It's heading towards the consummation of God's reign over all things. That God takes office as king in the end. His kingdom is consummated to the doom of his foes and to the joy of his friends. If you're not a citizen of God's kingdom, I urge you today to repent and believe, to receive Christ as your Savior and King. And if you are on the King's side, then let your heart be filled with joy at what the consummation of his kingdom means. And may that joy produce in you both perseverance and praise, that whatever the cost, you would always feel compelled to cry out, long live the King, that you would be a faithful citizen of his kingdom. Let's pray and ask that God would do that for us together. Father, we praise you and we adore you for sending your son to inaugurate your kingdom, your restorative reign and rule here on earth. Thank you, Father, for bringing us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Thank you for making us citizens of the kingdom that is to come. Cause us, Father, to have all of the joy that this passage should bring us. Cause us to rejoice in the promised consummation of your kingship over all the earth. Cause us, Father, to rejoice in the defeat of your foes. Cause us to rejoice in the reward that we will receive and cause us to rejoice in the experience of your presence that awaits us. And we pray, Father, that this joy would produce in our hearts steadfastness, perseverance, that regardless of the cost, we would be loyal to you, that you are worth it, Jesus. Your kingdom is worth it. And cause us, Father, with all this joy to respond in praise. Let us be like the 24 elders that we see here in Revelation 11, falling on our faces before you in worship. Please give us hearts that rightly adore you and give thanks to you for your reign and for your reign that is to be consummated soon. All of this, Lord, we pray for your glory in us, and we pray for our good too. We know that you love us and desire these things, so we pray that you would accomplish it by your Spirit. It's in your name, Jesus. Amen.